appreciate Kyle reading all of Acts 19 and what happened to Paul there in Ephesus. And our passage today is a dandy. It is full of great truths. And we joined the church at Ephesus again where Paul had sent Timothy to teach God's truth to God's church. And Timothy, God has called you to minister to this church. And chapter 1 started out instructing Timothy to keep a tight hold on God's truth. And chapter 1 reminded Timothy that Paul understood the situation that he was facing. And as we move to chapter 2, Paul instructs Timothy where the church should start this battle. And what is the first item of instruction? I exhort, therefore, first of all, that you pray. Timothy, start by praying. Pray for everybody, even the politicians. And there are two verses in today's passage that have been discussed with so many opinions trying to understand what Paul meant ever since verses 4 and 6 were written. And these verses, when taken as a single phrase and taken out of context, fall into a group of verses that some people have used to incorrectly teach universal salvation, meaning there is no hell and that God will save everyone. I'm just, as introduction, I'm going to explain this. In chapter 1 Timothy 2, 4, who will have all men to be saved. And when you couple that with Ephesians 1, 11, being predestined according to the purpose of his will, after the counsel of his will, the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will, have led some men to incorrectly conclude that God's will is to save everyone because he always does his will. And in verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. Jesus gave himself as a ransom, and some have concluded that he paid the redemption price for all, which when you couple that with 1 John 2, 2, that he gave himself as a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Romans five eighteen, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. These verses have led men to incorrectly conclude that the price of salvation has been paid for all men. And then if you couple that with Isaiah 45:23, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance and others. We see how verses taken as standalone out of the context can cause confusion and we know that these thoughts are not true. These are not the thoughts the Bible is teaching that God is not teaching the salvation of all people, as in John 3.36. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what are these verses in 1 Timothy 2 teaching? And there are things in Scripture that are hard to understand and have been misinterpreted by people to their own destruction, as Peter describes about Paul's epistles in 2 Peter 3.16, that what Paul writes, these are they that are unlearned and unstable wrestle as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. So if we take verse 4, who will have all men to be saved, that phrase by itself, along with verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all, and they do not teach universal salvation. So what is the meaning? For many years, these verses have been discussed, 
and so much so that John Owens dedicated seven years of his life writing his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, in an attempt to bring understanding to these difficult verses. And his book is a difficult book. It would probably take me seven years to read and understand it also. These two phrases have similar phraseology, something about God and something about man. So in an attempt to understand them, believers have either added something about God or added to something about man in an attempt to bring a complete thought to them. But with all the Bible, the meaning of the passage comes from the context. The context is what gives us the understanding. And so with that as an introduction, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to title these verses, First of All, Pray. And with that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that there is nothing good in ourselves, that you have paid the ransom for our sin, that you have given of yourself to us as our mediator, and we rejoice in your salvation and ask that you would grow us in our understanding of your word and come and meet with us, for we truly are needy people. Thank you for how you work in our lives and for granting us your word now. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to call these verses, first of all, pray. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Have you ever stood there looking at a big project with big challenges? As Timothy was doing here at this church of Ephesus and wondered, where do we begin? Where do we start? And Paul is instructing Timothy in this church of Ephesus, start with prayer. So we start with the priority of prayer. First of all, I urge. First of all, I exhort. The words urge, exhort, are different than a direct command. This is more of a desire, wish. I hope you are starting with prayer. And first of all, can mean the first item on your work list. Or it can mean the first thing above all other items. This is the most important thing. First of all, supplications. We take Paul to mean that this is more important than anything else. The first, the primary item to bring order into this church is to offer prayer to our Heavenly Father. And we move on to the practice of prayer. And that's described to us in four words. Supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. First, supplications. Supplications are a request, a petition that is addressed to God because he is the source of all that we need. Pleading with God about a need. A request for God's help so that God would receive the glory he is due as God taught us. As Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, 9, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, make your name holy. Let your will be done in this situation. 
as Jesus said in John 14, 13, And whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And this is the point of prayer, that in all things God would receive the glory that he is due. Secondly, is prayer. And that is a generic term that is often used in the Bible, and it means to make a request of God. The people of God, the apostles, the prophets, have always been people of prayer. And Jesus was also described in this way in Hebrews 5-7. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that is able to save from death and was heard in that he feared. May we be people of prayer. Third is intercessions. To make intercessions is to speak to God on behalf of someone else. Intercessions on behalf of other people should be a frequent event in our lives, as we had this morning. We talked about interceding for some people. And our Savior is at Christ's right hand interceding for us now. Romans 8:34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. When we intercede in prayer for other people, we reflect, we imitate what Christ is currently doing for us. We reflect our Savior when we intercede for other people in prayer. And fourth, giving of thanks. 1 Timothy 5.18 And everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. We have so many things for which to express gratitude and to give thanks. I hope gratitude and thankfulness is a part of our day each day for the mercy and grace that we have received. This past Tuesday, I had an event happen to me. I was requested to participate in jury duty. I found myself sitting in a group of 42 people in a courtroom, and 12 of them, 12 of us, 42, were, select, were going to be selected to hear the evidence for a crime. And then the final 12 people were going to have to decide whether this person was guilty, and if so, whether to send this person to jail for a very long time. By the end of the day, I wasn't selected to be part of this group. But as I sat there in this group listening to the details, and the longer the selection process went out, and the more the details of this trial became apparent, the more sick to my stomach I became. As I realized the horrible consequences of sin on so many people that were impacted by this alleged crime, and I was reminded afresh of our impossible situation without the grace of God. What is our condition without the grace of God? Are we thankful for what God has done for us to pay for the price of our salvation? Are we thankful for the immeasurable grace we have received? If we are thankful, then we will also pray to God that he would grant salvation to other people. Which brings us to the point of prayer. Pray for all men. And then he continues. Pray for kings. 
The salvation of a king is no more important than that of a slave. But the welfare of so many people depend upon his decisions so that he should be made the special subject of prayer so that God's grace would be upon his decisions. Pray for all that are in authority, for those with elevated positions of authority because the welfare of all those under their control depends greatly on them. And the technical detail we should bring out here is the Greek word used for for and for all in verses 1 and 2 means on behalf of or for the sake of another person. Pray on behalf of other people. And he's teaching us to pray for people without partiality. In the scripture reading in verse that we read in Acts 19 which detailed some of the prejudice and the idolatry that existed in Ephesus Paul was in Ephesus there for three years in about A.D. 53 to 56. And this epistle of 1 Timothy is written about six or eight years later, A.D. 62 to 64, which will be an important detail here in a minute. There in Ephesus, they had a four-way battle going between the Christians, the Jews, the Romans, and the worshipers of the Ephesian goddess. Pray for all people without distinction according to their status in life, whether king or slave, rich or poor, Gentile or Jew. We need to pray for them. Does God only save the Jews? How about the Gentiles? Does God save kings? God saves people without distinction and without partiality, as we will study in 1 Timothy 5.21. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels, that you observe these things without preferring one another. Do nothing by partiality. We shouldn't be like Jonah, who reluctantly went to Nineveh, and he felt dejected because God didn't discriminate against people. And you remember what happened there in Jonah 4.11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there's more than 120,000 people who do not know the right hand from the left and also much cattle? Pray for people without prejudice, without discrimination. Pray for people without favoritism. Who's going to pray for Caesar? How about those Roman soldiers? Who will pray for Pilate and Herod? Paul is making clear that we shouldn't pray for the, should not only pray for the people we like. Don't pray for your fellow believers solely there in your local church, but pray for all people. And in our pride... We can think that we are the most important people that deserve our prayers. The people that we know in our circle of friends. And here at Ephesus, they had apparently come to think that they were the ones who needed the most prayer. We shouldn't only pray for our politicians only when we feel like it, but this should be part of worship as we do on Wednesday evening and also in our family worship and private worship. It's important. Pray for people of all social positions and chapter 1 described this battle that Timothy was facing. And you should be consistent in your prayer for your enemies. Think of the life of, a, of the Apostle Paul. At one time, he was the enemy of the church. He had governmental authority to persecute Christians, which he did very successfully. Did the early church pray for him, or did they fear and complain about him? Governments are ordained of God, and God promotes who he will to the administration of them, and we should pray for them, even when we suffer under them. And there was a man in authority at Ephesus at this time that we learn from history 
that had a specific need of prayer. Who was the Roman king at the time this book was written? Who was the Roman king, Roman emperor at the time? It's not in scripture, it's from history. Nero. Nero was a king, Roman emperor, and he reigned from A.D. 54 to 68. And that emperor is known for heavily persecuting the Christians, especially beginning in A.D. 64. And history tells us that Nero is the ruler that martyred the apostle Peter. He is also the one who presided over the martyrdom of the apostle Paul. And God's sovereignty in this book, as he is requesting prayer, is amazing because Paul is writing to Timothy requesting and prayer for the salvation for rulers of the man that would ultimately put Paul to death. What a love Paul had for the souls of men and for their salvation. Matthew 5.43 as Jesus taught us, You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father, children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the good, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain to the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So it comes to the first question. Are we praying for people, for kings, and for all that are in authority? Come now to the result of prayer. Why pray for those in authority? For two reasons. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We pray for those in authority that God will direct them and grant them the grace to make wise decisions for our benefit, that we, under their authority, may lead a quiet and peaceable life. We are not instructed to get rich and powerful under them. Our ambitions as Christians should be a quiet and peaceable life. And the instruction is that we cannot expect a quiet and peaceable life unless our pursuits our godliness and honesty. Our duty as Christians is summed up in two words. Godliness, how we behave towards God, and honesty, how we treat each other. If we are not truly honest towards each other, then we're not godly. And if we're not seeking godliness, then we cannot be honest. We are to be people given to much prayer. As we pray for others, we're, be, we're to be generous in our concern for each other. And we are to pray for all men and to give thanks for all men and to not limit our prayers and thanksgiving only to ourselves. In 1 Timothy 3.10 For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are open to the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And Hebrew also re, Hebrews reminds us that we should also pray for those in authority because of our brethren that are in persecution. Hebrews 13.3 Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity 
as being yourselves also in the body. When we bring up the subject of the power of rulers, there's one ruler that comes to mind during the Babylonian captivity, that of Nebuchadnezzar. And think of the man under his authority who prayed. Man of authority who lived in peace, that of Daniel, who went into his house and opened his window towards Jerusalem, kneeled three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. It was around this time, after the tribe of Judah was sent into captivity, the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah wrote a letter to those Jewish captivities of instruction in Jeremiah 29. This is just a beautiful letter he wrote to them. Jeremiah 29, we'll pick up at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem into Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof you shall have peace. Jump down to verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye search for me with all of your heart, and I will be found of you, says the Lord. We move on now to verses 3 through 7, and I'm going to title these Reasons to Pray. Picking up in verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. In these verses, the Greek word used as for in the beginning of verses 3 and 5 and also in the ESV for 7 means the word because. And we're exhorted to pray in verses 1 and 2 and in these, three, these verses we are told the reasons to pray. The first reason to pray because God desires to save people, verses 3 and 4. We pray because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. We pray because prayer is good and acceptable, and we pray for the unsaved, the kings, and for all in authority. In the King James it states, God will have all men to be saved, while the ESV states, God desires all people to be saved. And God tells us something about the wicked in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, so turn and live. In Ezekiel 33.11, Say unto them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There is no pleasure in for God to condemn Israel, to condemn sinners to eternal judgment. And there's a sense which God desires to save 
as Jesus demonstrated in Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets, and stonest them, sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Ye would not. And the phrase, all men, is the same in verse 1 and verse 4. As we are instructed to pray for all men, for kings and all authority, and pray for people without prejudice, in the same way God will save all people without prejudice. He will save all types and all sorts of people, kings, for those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. Nero was not beyond the reach of God's saving grace, and neither is the president of our country. We pray for all men because Jesus saves out of all men without distinction. And the Jews were convinced that God was a respecter of persons, and he was only going to save the Jews. As Acts 10 and 11 are given to the subject, and it was a definite light bulb moment for the Apostle Peter in Acts 10.34 when he said, when Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. And what comes in verses 6 and 7 will add to this thought. And we have so much to be thankful for, that God didn't save a group of people in a small country on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. But he also cares for us living here in Wichita, Kansas, and anywhere else in the world. We pray for people in each of these countries and for all men without prejudice because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will save people. It is thrilling that we as God's children get to participate in the salvation of other people through prayer. So the question is are we praying for God to save people? The second reason to pray, pray because there is only one Savior. We pray because there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In the entire world, there is only one God that can save. And there is only one mediator between God and man. To have a mediator there must be a controversy. Mediation brings people together, and Christ has become our mediator to bring us to God. We have a perfect God who is holy and without sin, and we have sinned against him and offended him, broken his laws, and the wrong is only on one side, and that's our side. God doesn't need a mediator. We need one, which God gave to us to bring us into his holiness. There's only one mediator, between God and man, and no other religion in any part of the world has a mediator. And God's eternal plan is to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as he has paid the ransom and he is the only source of salvation, as we read in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And more than mediation, he also gave himself as the ransom to pay the price, to pay the ransom price 
is to secure the pardon for sin, is to pay the price of redemption of a sinner to be released from punishment. For there is one God and one mediator who paid the ransom for souls. What Paul wrote so long ago is still true. In all the history, in all the history of the entire world, there is only one God and only one ransom that has ever been paid for any soul. Nothing compares to the ransom that Jesus has paid for our salvation. There's nothing in size, nothing in scope, nothing in agony, nothing in enduring value since salvation lasts for eternity. Purchasing heaven for us who deserve eternal punishment for our sin, God offers such an astonishing salvation. Did Jesus come to only ransom the Jews to be his children? Romans 3.29 Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles only. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. God gave himself for our salvation. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? All that will be saved have had the ransom paid in full, who gave himself a ransom for all. It cannot mean all as in everybody, because if the ransom was paid for all, then all would be saved. The ransom was paid for all as in all types of people without prejudice, without distinction. We are to pray for all people without partiality because God saves people without partiality to their position in life. And that brings great glory to his name as is repeated in scriptures in Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brings us to verse 7, the third reason to pray. Pray because Paul needs prayer. Pray for Paul because he is ordained a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Paul was ordained a preacher and apostle to whom? The Gentiles, as is stated also in Romans eleven thirteen, For I speak to you Gentiles insomuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. And Galatians 2, 7. They saw the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For this group of people, he was their teacher, the Gentiles, and Paul was requesting that they pray for him as he ministers, as he ministers the gospel. So I'll close with the last question. Are we praying for each other as we minister the gospel to a lost and dying world? Prayer should be the first attribute of God's church as he was ordained, as he, God has ordained prayer to be a part of the salvation of the lost. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the challenge it brings to us to pray. Teach us to pray that we would be people of prayer, seeking to bring you glory 
in all things. Thank you for your grace, your mercy that you grant to us each day. In Christ's name, amen.